Good morning. I want to begin this morning by just reminding us and asking the question, why? When you think about the Advent season, why do we have Advent? If somebody came up to you in the street that was unfamiliar with Christian lingo and terms, what would you tell them about why we celebrate Advent? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Now, we're going to get more into that next week as it relates to for God so loved the world that Christ came to die. And of course, we understand in the broad picture there can be no resurrection without a crucifixion. And there can be no crucifixion without a birth. And we have to remember that it's very difficult. In fact, it's impossible for us to understand the humility of Christ coming, being born, living among us, letting go of his rights of heaven, him being God and coming in the form of a small, helpless baby. So go back to my question of why. I'll talk a little more about this later, but please don't forget the why. And let that translate into investing in someone's life so they can find the Christ of Christmas. This morning we're looking at joy. It's one of the four Advent themes. And when you think about joy, what does it mean? How would you define it? What kind of definition would you come up with? We read verses like this in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, about the shepherds. And when the angels appeared, the angel said to him, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. The wise men had a conversation with Herod. And when they were going from Herod's palace trying to find Jesus, it says in chapter 2, verse 10 of Matthew, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The word there is just one. It means to be overjoyed. It's just one word. But all this joy... And you think about it in the context where Herod was so upset at the potential prospect of a new king, politically he orders and kills all the male children to and under. And how does that relate to what the shepherds talked about, good news of great joy? Imagine how you would have felt if you were Joseph and Mary. Knowing that your baby, even though as miraculous as it was, was the cause of a lot of grief among Jewish parents. Imagine if you were one of the parents who lost a son. How you would have felt about all this news about Joseph and Mary's baby and somehow he was protected while their son died. How does all this relate to this theme of joy? Now, in America, often our definitions come from the way that we use words. Nice way of saying we kind of make up the definitions as we see fit. So today, if you talk about joy, some parents have named their children joy, and so they think of a person. Oh, joy is my daughter. Some people relate to gift giving. They say things like this at Christmas. Look how joyful the kids are in anticipation of the gifts. But what is joy in scripture? What is Christian joy? If God were to define joy, he would say, this is what I mean. 
Now, as we celebrate joy in the Advent season, we have to understand that it is because Scripture talks about having joy. It talks about rejoicing. It is something attainable. So this idea of joy is just not theoretical. It's not some belief that a few have or one person has. It is something that is attainable by every single person here this morning and every single person that we encounter, no matter what we think or believe about that person. But let me make two clarifications to begin with. Let's go back to Advent. You know, the word Advent means time forward, or it means to look forward. Advent can be applied to a person like John the Baptist, who was a forerunner of Christ. He was pointing to the Messiah. So Advent is before Christmas, and it points to Christ and his birth. Now in our culture, it seems like we jump right from Thanksgiving to Christmas. In fact, it seems like we do Christmas before Thanksgiving. We have all these parades and everything else. And in our culture, for whatever reason, we've lost this, this anticipation. And instead of reflecting and anticipating for Christ, we fill our schedules with parties, shopping, decorations. There's no looking forward. There's only like, man, when can this be over so I can take everything down and resume a normal life? So the question I have for you this morning When you think about Advent, what are you filling your mind and heart and life with? Is it things that anticipate the birth of Christ? See, with Advent, there's really two things that we should be doing. One is we say, I don't want this. Being the values and culture and propagation that, that in our society takes away the time of reflection and joy and peace and love that God brings. So we say, you know what? I'm going to de-emphasize this. I'm going to cleanse my life of these kinds of things. And then you say, well, here's what I want. And I want to be like Christ. I want to be a lover of Christ. What he values, I want to value. Where he leads, I want to follow. I mean, that's really what Advent is about. Now, the other observation I want to make is I think we have to reemphasize a trait that for us, if we are going to see Advent, if we're going to live out Advent, if we're going to reflect during Advent, we have to adopt this characteristic, and it's the one that's found in the forerunner, John the Baptist, where he said, I must decrease, he must increase. It's the characteristic of humility. And Paul writes these words, For all of us, in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and says this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So if we are preparing ourselves, if we're preparing ourselves to be like Jesus, we must have this characteristic of humility. I looked up many different definitions, and the one I'm going to go with this morning, I found from John Piper. And here's the definition that we're going to look at this morning when we talk about Christian joy. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see Christ in the word and in the world. Now let me break that down. First, joy is an emotion. It's a feeling. 
It's not an idea. It's not a conviction. It's not a persuasion. It's not a decision. You can't snap your fingers and decide to feel something. Let me give this illustration. I don't know if you like camping, but if you're out camping, you're in a tent, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you hear what sounds like a bear. And you see a silhouette that looks like a bear. Now, you don't say, now let me think about this. Big bear, maybe hungry. Yes, I left some snicker bars in the tent underneath my pillow. (laughs) You don't think this could be dangerous, and I have no gun, no knife. I don't even have another person I could offer as a sacrifice while I run for my life. (laughs) So I'm going to conclude, and I'm going to snap my fingers, and I'm going to be afraid. No, it doesn't work that way. I mean, Paul says things like this because, you know, our emotions are a reaction to situations, but I want to get into that later. But here's what Paul says in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, then he says, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. So joy is an emotion, but it's an emotion that is in our soul. Not the body, but the soul. It's a material part. Actually, it's an immaterial part of who we are. It's that eternal aspect. Now, our body may feel the effect of that. We talk about people having tears of joy or jumping for joy. But the body is chemicals, it's muscles, it's nerves, it's electrons, it's atoms, it's molecules. The soul is a spiritual construct. So we're going to see this later. Joy is produced by the Spirit. And when you study Scripture, the Spirit's task is to help us see Jesus. Read it every time. I'm here to do what? To glorify Jesus Christ. Now the tragedy of the Christian faith is that we allow everything and everyone around us to help us see a world without Jesus. And because we allow our circumstances to dictate our minds and we allow everything else out there to control our emotions, we lose hope. And we lose peace. And we lose joy. And we lose love. Those things that we anticipate as we look forward to Christ. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. And he has a very interesting term that he used. It was called Christian hedonism. Now, hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. C.S. Lewis says Christian hedonism is the pursuit of Christ. It's where we give up everything to pursue Christ, to be followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus tells a story this way. He says there's a person who liquidates everything that he has, literally everything, all his stocks, all his bank accounts, all his retirement accounts. He literally unloads everything to buy just one piece of land. Sounds crazy, isn't it? In Matthew 13, 44, here's what he says about that person. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So what he's saying is that 
Christ is worth you losing everything that you think is of a value. It's why Paul sits in prison and people are using, other preachers are using Paul's situation to badmouth him. They're spreading rumors. They're saying things like this. Paul, you know, obviously you had to do something wrong. You're a bad witness for Christ because you've gone too far. You're a little too radical. Look at us. We preach and we're not in prison. But Paul comes along and says this. God put me here. Because the gospel needs to be preached to the guards. And that's why he says some crazy things like this in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And later on that same chapter, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. And when we read this letter, we find out what joy looks like in an impossible setting. I mean, in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, and he went through this whole list of credentials. All his educational credentials, all his money credentials. And he says this, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, if we didn't get the message, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I think about how relevant that verse is to many Christians living in the Middle East right now. And the underground church is growing at a rapid rate, but also are their deaths. Their decision to find Christ literally may cost them everything they have in this world. But they count it as joy. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 18, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We sang about that this morning. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. That's kind of a nice way of saying, even if I die for the cause. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Tough situations, but he's saying, listen, be glad and rejoice. It's just not a bodily reaction. It is something that's given by the Holy Spirit inside our souls that is given to us by God himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility count others more than significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also in the interests of others. See, being a follower of Jesus and for people who don't follow Jesus, Paul says we both experience life. We experience pain. We experience suffering. We experience death. We experience frustrations, anger. We experience all those things. And we often have the same bodily reactions. But the difference for people who have joy in their soul is how we deal with life. And so James comes along and says some crazy things like this in chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Seeing our souls, part of the fruit of the spirit called joy. Being a lover of Jesus makes us better bosses, employees, spouses, parents, kids. And according to Paul, we can choose not to grumble or we can get into arguments and disputes. We can choose to hold fast to the word of God or we can choose to hold fast to the the media and the internet sensation that we have today. See, the problem so often is that we seek to imitate culture rather than love Christ. Now I want to go back to the theme of the definition that this joy is produced by the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Interesting. There's the themes of Advent. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. What that simply means is this. You can't legislate this. You can't counsel it. You can't make it happen. There is no law on human effort in human form that can reduce this kind of effect in our souls. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And Paul speaks to this war here, doesn't he? That goes on with us. The flesh and the spirit. Tension and conflict. And in chapter 5 and 6, he says, one will produce freedom and one will produce slavery. And the conflict in our culture is that we reverse this, don't we? Things that enslave us, we say, no, 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 no. We got to do this because we have the right, we have the freedom. We can do whatever we want because. And so we think that things that enslave us really produce freedom. But when we find ourselves enslaved, then what do we do? Well, we blame somebody else in the circumstance and situation. And things that free them, they react against and they call it slavery. You can't tell me what to do. You don't own me. And if we're concerned, and if we're more concerned with our culture than Christ, if we're more concerned about being liked and being friends than we are being lovers of Jesus, then the things of this world will enslave us. Let me illustrate this. You know, even inside the Christian church, we have this tension right now. There's a Christian blog that I subscribe to, and, you know, blogs are linear, so it's anything you read, you have to be careful how you interpret what you see because linear blogs, you can't read intent and emotion into those. But this past week, a pastor responded to this person who writes this blog, and he says this, he goes, and I quote, I find your blog very troubling. Then I'm just going to read what he wrote. He writes, there is no tolerance, inclusiveness, or love in your writings. It's hateful towards the, and he names a particular group of people, and others who don't share your views about gay rights, reproductive rights, and many other issues. And then he goes on to accuse them of backwardness and bigotry. 
And then he writes this. Christians in a committed same-sex relationship are following God's design for their lives. That's the message the church needs to spread. And then he goes on again to accuse him of hateful words, dark ages. He should be ashamed of himself. So I was curious how this blogger would respond. And he just said two things. Well, I actually said more than two things, but two things I'm going to highlight. He goes, these are not my views about reproductive rights. I'm merely agreeing with the one who's already made his position on these subjects known. And two, he says, it's not the church's job to make us comfortable, pastor. It's the job to help us make us holy. And I thought about that last line, especially during the Advent season, as we anticipate, as we reflect, as we think about what it means to bow humbly at the feet of Jesus. Are we doing things that make us holy? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There he's talking about sin. We can sit there and say, well, you know, I'll follow 99% of what Jesus says, but this 1% I want to keep in my own closet. I want to keep in my desk of drawers. I want to pull that out whenever I want. No, he says, you, you do that, and it really spreads very quickly, and it enslaves you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, you become imitators of us and of the Lord. And you receive the word in much affliction. And then he writes this, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So understand this morning that Christian joy comes from the Spirit. And he embreds that and breeds that into us. We cannot manufacture this on our own. And our bodily reaction may be full of pain. It may be hard. But deep down in our souls... We find this foundation that exists, that we navigate these tough times together. And you note the word I use together because all the passages I read this morning, what they have in common. Did you notice? It talked about we. talked about the church. Never does scripture say that you are to do this on your own. Don't ever believe the myth that this American individualistic spirit says, you know what? If I can't suck it up, if I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps, then somehow I'm unworthy. That's anti-biblical nonsense. We are a body and we're in this together. And we are all sinners saved by grace. The last part of that definition then is seeing Christ in the word and world. Now, what that simply means is that we are students of Christ. That's what the word disciple means. We sit at his feet. We listen. We align our mind and our hearts and our lives. And we do so in community. And it's why unity is so important. It's why he prayed for unity just before his crucifixion. In 1 John... Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So one of the ways you want to find true Holy Spirit joy is you take a study of 1 John, and you listen, and you reflect, 
And you sit at the feet of the master and say, what is it you want to teach me? Because the reason he wrote that small epistle is because he wants people's joy to be complete. And he says the same thing in 2 John, verse 12 of chapter 1. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Do you hear what he's saying? We hold fast to Christ. And we hold fast to each other. And Christ gives us this soulful joy. And we also in community give each other joy. I mean that is one of our roles. That's one of our designs. Now I've been doing this thing called pastoring for at least what I think is a very long time. About 38 years now. It's hard to believe. I remember the whole hyper hysteria back in Bible college about Christ coming back. And of course, they were setting dates of 1980, and that's when I would have graduated. That's when I was supposed to get married. And I'm like, I'm also just quit school now because I'm only going to have two years. <laughs> you know, I want to get married, want to do a few things before Christ comes back again. I could have told you back in those days, I would have never guessed it had been 38 years that I've been doing this. But I thought about this whole thing of Galatians and what John writes and how we're to hold fast to each other and we're supposed to give each other joy and community. And I made a little list this past week. And the one list was things that unite us. Because when we're united, as Paul says in Philippians 2, I read that, that's what produces joy. Then I had another list about things that divide us. Now these lists got really long, so I'm not going to go down through the whole list. But let me put, tell you about some things I put in the list that unite us. I put things like Christ and his spirit. The mission of the church. Lost people. Body life. A diverse gift mix. Diverse personalities. Causes of compassion. Then things that divide us. And again, these are things that we allow to divide us and should not. I put words like preferences. And I put beside that both in practice and theology. I mean, I ran into someone a few weeks ago that gets divided over whether or not someone should mow the lawn on a Sunday. Pride. My way or the highway. And this is something that is is one of the sins pastors have to watch out for because we can get a messianic complex. We really can. We think everybody should listen to what we're doing. No, we are part of the body. I happen to have a specific role. My specific role is to preach God's word. Sin. I had a whole list of other things, but I thought, you know what? What we're talking about is sin, desires of the flesh, envy, gossip, fear, a lack of generosity. And then I wrote this down, the sin of offense. John Belvedere wrote a book called The Bait of Satan. And in there, he talks about how we get offended at everything and everyone, and we allow that offense to grow in our hearts, and it divides us. And I thought, you know, he's right. He's right. So reflecting upon the Advent season, How are you filling your mind and your heart preparing for the birth of Christ? 
And how are you allowing distractions to take you away from this deep, joyful, soulful fruit of the spirit that God gives to us? Now, many of you know I like to read, and I like to read a diverse audience. And I read both friends and enemies. And I came across a book last year. It was called The Book of Joy. I thought, okay, sounds interesting. But what really caught my attention was the author's. This book was written as a collaboration between the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu. I thought, okay, that's kind of an odd combination to get together. So I'm going to open this thing up and I'm going to take a look at it and see what it says. Well, as they sat down and talked, they came to the conclusion there's eight pillars of joy. Four in the mind and four in the heart. And what they said was that joy comes from Christ, at least Desmond said that. I don't know what the Dalai Lama would say. But Christ, well, let me put it this way. He says, first of all, it's perspective, humility, humor, and acceptance. Those are four conditions of the mind. You heard me say before that uh, if you learn to laugh at yourself, you'll never run out of material. We need to do that more often. (laughs) Humility. Perspective, you know, how we go into situations, how we go into Christmas, it changes everything. I'm fascinated as a referee when I make a certain call in the court, depending what side you're on, the opposing team or for the team, there's different perspectives about that call, whether it was good or bad. And they both believe their version. Four pillars in the heart. The first one was forgiveness. Forgiveness. I thought about all the things we need to learn to let go of during Advent season. Probably forgiveness is one of those things that we just need to let go of all the pain and the hurt and the bitterness and everything that we hang on to, those offenses. See, that's a good thing to let go during Advent. Gratitude or thanksgiving, compassion. And of course, the word compassion is calm with passion, suffering. Compassion just isn't an emotion. It's actually a deep, hurtful, painful condition. And then generosity. I thought, wow, interesting. There are eight pillars. But here's what fascinated about me. At the very end of the book, they said this. So, what's the secret of joy? Here was their agreed upon answer. Not thinking too much of yourself. Not thinking too much of yourself. It's my prayer and hope that during this Advent season, you don't think too much of yourself. But rather you reflect upon what it means to be a lover of Jesus. What do we need to get rid of that keeps me from that? What do we need to embrace that has kept me from that? And then when Christmas Day comes, we just humbly worship Christ, this King. I'm going to call the worship team up. As they come, I want to read a scripture in the book of Hebrews. It really kind of sums up everything we talked about this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? Let's stand as we worship.